pulsing through our culture and world is an underlying awareness, longing, and hope. We can see it in advertising, literature, and movies. Taking movies as an example, in 1999, a movie entitled The Matrix uh, made the underlying human hope and longing its main theme. Perhaps the, the writers were unaware of what they were doing, but the main character, Neo, was presented as the one. Uh, at first, he's presented as kind of an ordinary man who's a, a computer genius. Neo wonders about the true nature of reality. Is, is what we live in all a dream? Or is something deeper and more profound going on? We, we soon learn that, that many hope that he is the one. And that phrase, the one, is, is used about him over and over again. He is the one who will first awaken to the reality that the world is under control by an evil force or forces. And that he will be the one to break it and so rescue everyone else from it. The plot is perhaps a bit more complex than that. But you get the point. Neo is a kind of Messiah. He is called the one over and over again by his friends and those who hope in him. Everyone's hope rests in him. And this, this messianic motif, the idea that one person or one individual is the hope of those who are in trouble, as I said, is, is pervasive in our culture and world. Uh, the, the Matrix is an example of a movie, but uh, J.R.R. Tolkien's novels would ably present us with, example, with an example of literature in which this idea is present. You could think of the comic book genre uh, as, as, as an example of this, where all of the superheroes are cast in one way or another as a kind of messiah. They save people who are in trouble. Uh, politicians, both on the left and the right, have used messianic language, language, whether intentionally or unintentionally, to further their candidacies. I distinctly remember one politician saying that what was rising from a whisper to a swell was a hymn that would heal this nation and repair this world. Who but Messiah could do such a thing? I'm sure other examples of this messianic motif are already springing to your mind, perhaps that you've read in books or seen in movies. When you think about it, does it amaze you that this kind of idea is so widespread in our culture and world? While we don't have time to kind of examine this reality, uh, the truth is, is this is not a particularly Western phenomenon. Just thinking back to the Matrix for a moment, why would writers who want to have very little to do with religion write a story with a messianic figure in it? This messianic motif is basically intuitive to our world because it touches on one of the deepest longings of the human heart, the need for redemption by another. The world is waiting for the one. And I'm here to tell you that he has come. And his name is Jesus. This is what we learn from the passage that we're studying together this morning. And it's my prayer that this morning as we study this portion of God's word, Matthew chapters 8, 9, and 10, and a little bit of 11, that we would see, hear, and believe that Jesus is the one. He is the one and only Savior. And if you haven't done so, let me encourage you to go ahead and turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 8. That's where we're going to begin. If you're using one of the Bibles provided, you can find the passage beginning on page 813. 813. Let's begin by considering some of the background and context concerning Matthew's gospel. Uh, Matthew, uh, the author of this gospel, Matthew, he was a Jewish tax collector whom Jesus called to follow. Matthew's call actually appears in this section that we're studying together this morning. Matthew was an eyewitness to Jesus' life and ministry. And as such, he's, he's qualified to write and teach us about Jesus' life. Matthew most likely wrote his gospel shortly after Jesus' death, resurrection, and ascension into heaven. Uh, Matthew, he's, he's an evangelist at heart. And so his aim and purpose in writing is to convince us, his readers, that Jesus is the one. He, he's the one that was promised from Genesis 3 who would crush the head of the serpent, who would defeat Satan. He is the one who is uh, promised to Abraham, who would bless the nations. He, he is the one who Isaiah 53 would be the suffering servant and die for the sins of many. He is the one who the whole Old Testament pointed forward to. And that's what Matthew 
is aimed at convincing us of this morning. He wants to make the case for us that Jesus is sinless and righteous, that He is the promised Savior and King. And so if you wanted to summarize the whole thrust of the passage that we're studying together this morning, this would be it, that Jesus is the promised one, the Savior and King, whom we should trust, obey, and proclaim. He is the one who is promised by the law and the prophets. And I want to show you this from our text right now. So I want you to see this from yourself, that Jesus is the promised one. So if you're taking notes this morning, if you want to follow along that outline provided in the bulletin, this is the first point that we're looking at together. Jesus is the one. Uh, let's begin by reading Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 to 4. And I'm going to be referring a lot to chapters and verses. The chapters are going to be the larger numbers in the text. And the verses are the smaller numbers. If you're not used to looking at a Bible, that's kind of how it's laid out. So uh, the large number 8 then, beginning at verse 1. When he came down from the mountain, let's talk about Jesus. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a leper came to him and knelt before him saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. And Jesus said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone. But go, show yourself to the priests and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. This is an astounding scene. Jesus, the one who is perfectly clean, is also perfectly compassionate. Jesus touches and heals a leper who has humbled himself before him. Due to his disease, this leper would not have known any physical care or affection from another person. And here Jesus knowing his distress and the desire of his heart, heals him. And, and we're going to think more in just a moment about Jesus' power to heal, but for right now, I want us to keep our focus on the idea that Jesus is the one, that he's the Savior and King whom the Scriptures promised. And verse 4 helps us to keep that in our sights. Notice that Jesus tells the man to go and to show himself to the priest to offer the gift, the gift that Moses commanded. This is obviously in accord with his statement in the Sermon on the Mount that he did not intend on abolishing the law, but in fulfilling it. This is certainly a command for the man to abide by the prescriptions of Leviticus 14, but it's more than that too. More than simply telling the man what he wanted him to do, Jesus tells the man why he wanted him to do it. Jesus wanted the priests to see proof that he is the promised one. And there's a reason, too, that Jesus tells the man not to go around talking about what he has done. That's because Jesus doesn't want to fast-forward his mission to the cross and because he wants to be the one to define for his audience and hearers what the promised one looks like and what he's come to do. He wants to communicate that truth and define this category of Messiah for his hearers. He wants these priests to see proof that he's the promised one. And we're going to see that in these sections too. So the, the, the Bibles that you have there, they, they probably have section headings uh, that where the editors and translators have inserted uh, into the biblical text in order to help us understand what's going on in the passage as we begin to read it. So in the Pew Bibles, I think you'll notice there in chapter 8, one of the titles after this one, the next one is the, the Faith of a Centurion. You'll just read the titles through these chapters. Jesus heals many uh, he calms the storm. He drives out demons. You flip over to chapter 9. Uh, you'll, you'll see there that uh, Jesus heals a paralytic. He enables him to walk. Uh, he calls Matthew. He answers a question. He brings a dead girl back to life. He heals a woman. He gives blind men sight. And he heals a man who was deaf and unable to speak. Then in chapter 10... Uh, it's, it's all about Jesus calling His disciples to join Him in the ministry of preaching the good news of the kingdom. And, and this should be enough to show us that Jesus is the one. But the close of our passage makes it explicit. John the Baptist, he wants a direct answer to this question. Is Jesus the promised one? So look at chapter 11 now. Matthew chapter 11, verse 2. Read verses 2 through 6 with me. John the Baptist wants to answer this question, is Jesus the promised one? So read verse 2 there. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, all those things that we've just heard about, thought about, 
he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. You see, far from being a random collection of Jesus' works and words, chapters 8, 9, and 10 anticipate and answer John's question here. Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? Well, having heard about the deeds of Christ, what, prom- what the promised one, what promised one was John thinking about? Could it be the promised one of Isaiah chapter 61, verse 1, who we're told would preach good news to the poor? Could it be the one who, according to Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, would open the eyes of the blind, unstop the ears of the deaf, make the lame leap like a deer, and cause the tongue of the mute to sing for joy? These were the Old Testament promises concerning God's Messiah. Jesus works His words. And His response to John's question makes it abundantly clear that He is indeed the promised one. We, we just scanned chapters 8, 9, and 10. And we saw that the blind, they received their sight. The, the lame walked. Leopards were cleansed. Deaf men heard. The dead were raised up. And good news was preached to the poor. What other conclusion could there be? Jesus is the promised one. Well, if the beginning won't convince you, and the end won't convince you, then perhaps the middle will. Uh, buried, almost right smack in the middle of our passage, passage, is a question about fasting. In Matthew chapter 9, take a look at chapter 9. There, we're looking at verses 14 to 17. Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 to 17. Jesus is asked why His disciples don't fast. Jesus answers the question with three metaphors. The arrival of the bridegroom, repairing an old garment, and new wine. Jesus first answers a question with a question in verse 15. Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? Jesus' question reveals that it's time to celebrate. Well, why is that? This is a time of joy and celebration because the bridegroom is here. He's come. Jesus is the bridegroom. He is the one who has come to win for himself a bride. He has come to die for his bride. And through his death, unite his bride to himself. And at Jesus' death, he will be taken away for a short period of time. And that will be a time for mourning and fasting. But right now, the bridegroom is here. And this is a time for joy. The king has come. This is a new era. And that is what the second and third metaphors get at. A new garment is needed. New wineskins are needed. While the law and the prophets are not abolished, they are fulfilled in a new way that has never before been accomplished. Jesus is freshly fulfilling the purposes of the Old Covenant. The Old Covenant with all of its forms was pointing to Jesus, the laws that He would keep for His people, and the ultimate sacrifice that He would offer once and for all. Jesus' response to a simple question about fasting reveals that He's talking about much more than fasting. He's talking about how all of redemptive history has been a preparation for His arrival. And now that He, the Bridegroom, has come, it's time to celebrate. Well, now that we've got the main idea of this passage firmly fixed in our minds, that Jesus is the one, that He's come, let's turn now and consider more closely the works and words of our wonderful Savior and how they prove that He is indeed the one. Let's begin by looking at Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 23 to 27. Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27, where we see that Jesus, He is the one who rules over creation. This is the second point we want to consider together this morning. Read Matthew chapter 8, verses 23 to 27. And when He got into the boat, His disciples followed Him. And behold, there arose a great storm on the sea, so that the boat was being swamped by the waves. But he was asleep. And they went and woke him, saying, Save us, Lord, we are perishing. And he said to them, Why are you afraid, O you of little faith? Then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was great calm. And the men marveled, saying, What sort of man is this, 
that even the winds and the sea obey him. You see here in these verses that Matthew tells that this storm was so bad that the boat was being swamped. And while the boat was being swamped, the Savior slept. It's a strange scene. But we must have some sympathy for Jesus, right? I mean, he was constantly teaching and working and healing. He, his need for rest reminds us of his humanity. And what he will do in a few verses reminds us of his deity. However, before we see his deity displayed, we see his disciples' dread. We have to have some sympathy for these men, too. They were experienced fishermen. And no doubt they had been in a bad storm on the Sea of Galilee before. If anyone knew when it was time to panic, it would have been them. The disciples, they went to Jesus and they woke him. And did you notice what they said? Take a look at verse 25 there. And they went and woke him saying, Save us, Lord, for we are perishing. They spoke the truth more truly than they knew. They were perishing. And the Lord Jesus was the only one who could save them. He is the only one who can save anyone. Jesus, ever perceiving, identifies their fear and lack of faith. He asks why they were afraid. Clearly, they didn't fully comprehend who he was. But perhaps in that moment, they had forgotten all of the miracles and signs that pointed to his deity. Jesus was the one who made the wind and the waves. He was the one who made the disciples. Is there any reason to fear the Lord of creation? is right there with them. What greater expression of love and assurance of divine protection could he display to them in that moment than to be with them? The disciples' fear turned to wonder when there was suddenly great calm, when Jesus rebuked the winds and the waves. Jesus spoke, and chaos was brought to order, just as he spoke in the beginning, just as when he spoke and the worlds were formed. Jesus is the one who rules over the creation. He is Lord and God. His words and his works reveal it. Children, youth, young adults, even adults. I, I wonder if you ever think to yourself, I'm, I'm swamped. Life is a, is, is a mess. Water is pouring over the side of the boat of my life and I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm scared. Children, when you, when you are afraid, I want to encourage you to go to Jesus and to call out to Him for help. He is no longer sleeping in a boat, but watching over His people in heaven, where He neither slumbers nor sleeps. He loves His people, and He cares about them. He is eager to hear the prayers of His people. Share your fears with Jesus. And share your fears with your parents. They love you too, and they can point you to the one who rules over creation, whom you can entrust your life to. Jesus, He not only rules over creation, but He is also the one who has power over disease, demons, and death. And this is the third point that we want to consider together this morning. That Jesus is the one who has power over disease, demons, and death. And as we consider this great truth, read Matthew chapter 8, Start there in verse 14, verses 14 to 17. Matthew chapter 8, verse 14. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. And he touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Now squished into these few verses, Matthew records many miracles by Jesus. By the gentle touch of the Savior, a fever was gone in an instant. By the powerful word of Christ, demons were cast out. And even though Matthew provides very little detail as to how and what took place in these verses, he wants us to understand the why. Jesus did these things not only because of his great love for the sick and the sore, 
but also in order to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. Here Matthew uses a short phrase from Isaiah 53 to remind, to, 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 to bring to mind the whole of that passage. Isaiah 53 as a whole, if you recall, is a servant song. It's a prophetic poem which describes how Jesus would suffer and die for sinners. Sickness in that passage is connected to sin. Sickness entered this world because of Adam and Eve's sin. Matthew is teaching us that Jesus came to abolish sin, but that he would do it by his death, resurrection, and return in judgment. This healing and all of the healings that Jesus performs are foretastes, glimpses of the glory of the kingdom to come, the heavenly kingdom to come. Where sickness or disease and sin are no more. In these chapters, there is not a single, uh, single disease that Jesus cannot heal and does not heal. And that is because in heaven, there is not a single disease that will remain. There won't be one there. You know, I, I always uh, recommend reading the, the passage. And I realize I give you guys large passages to read here in this Matthew series. Uh, to encourage you just to read them in advance. Uh, look ahead in the bulletin, see what we're going to study next week. Um, one of the things that if you were able to read in advance, you might have seen is, is that, um, is that uh, a number of people that Jesus heals are actually oppressed by demons. Um, we, we see that in uh, chapter 8, verse 16 there, which we just read. We also see it uh, with the two men in chapter 8, verses 28 to 34. And uh, with the mute man in chapter 9, verses 32 to 34. When Jesus comes near these demons, sometimes they actually call out and identify Him as the Son of God, as, uh, as in Matthew chapter 8, verse 28. We might ask ourselves, you know, when these demons, they, they call out, they say, you're the Son of God. We might ask ourselves, what's, what's going on here? Well, part of what is taking place is that in Jesus' power to heal is, is the revelation of His power to subdue evil, to subdue evil spirits and demons. The, the Scriptures teach that demons are real and that they have real power. But the Scriptures also teach that their power is no match for Jesus. Now, the, the religious leaders of the day don't get what's going on. According to Matthew chapter 9, Verse 34, they think that Jesus is casting out demons by the power of the prince of demons. They, they think that he's possessed by the chief demon. And so he's able to order these other lesser demons around. Frankly, that's an absurd notion. Just thinking rationally about the matter, why would Satan work against himself? It's sad that a whole town asks Jesus to leave because he's casted Cast demons out. Chapter 8, verse 34. And, and the Pharisees, they don't see how good and gracious Jesus is to relieve men from suffering from demon oppression. Chapter 9, verse 34. In reality, what Jesus was doing was showing them the power and mercy of the King. He, he came to rescue the souls of men from the imprisonment of Satan and his minions. The, the power of the kingdom of heaven is breaking into this present evil age. Because the King is here. And we see it in what he's doing. Well, there, there's one more thing that we need to see and rejoice in too. And that is Jesus' power over death. In Matthew chapter 9, verses 18 to 26, Jesus, he, he not only displays his, his power to heal a woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, but he also displays his power to resuscitate a little girl who had died. In chapter 9, verse 18, we meet a father who is distraught at the death of his daughter. And Mark's gospel tells us that his name is Jairus. And it's clear from what he has said in verse 18 that he believes that Jesus can give her life. And when Jesus and Jairus finally arrive, they find the mourners already present there at the home. In those days when somebody died, the, the family would, would actually hire professional uh, wailers and mourners to, to mourn their loss. They're there because the girl is dead. And Jesus seems oblivious to the earlier report when he tells the, the mourners in verse 24, Go away, for the girl is 
Not dead, but sleeping. Was Jesus confused? No. Jesus was not confused. Rather, he knew what he was about to do. And so the state that that girl was in was no worth, no, no worse than a peaceful sleep. He knew that this death would not finally hold her in the grave. Because when death is faced with the Lord of life, it must flee. Jesus' power over disease and demons and death shows us that he has come to wage war against the consequences of the fall. When sin entered into this world by the hearts and hands of Adam and Eve, disease and demons and death began to wreak havoc on God's creation. We need one who is more powerful than these destructive forces, and that one is Jesus. We need something more, too. We need to be forgiven of our sins. It was tragic that Adam and Eve sinned, but we have all sinned, too. And therefore, we all need to be forgiven. So let's turn now and consider our next point, that Jesus is the one who has authority to forgive sins. We see this in Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. Read, read those verses with me. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And he rose and went home. And when the crowds saw it, they were afraid and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now this scene is one of back and forth. Jesus crosses over on a boat, then men come to him being paralyzed. Uh, men, men come to him bringing a paralyzed friend. Then Jesus speaks. Then the Pharisees grumble. Then Jesus heals the man. This uh, vignette takes place at a frenetic pace. It's back and forth. But slowing down, we should observe several things. First, the, these men who brought their paralyzed friend to Jesus were determined to see him healed. How kind and loving these men were to bring him to Jesus. We should bring people to Jesus. He can heal them. These men, they had faith in Jesus. And it's also true that this paralyzed man had great faith in that Jesus could heal him as well. When Matthew tells us there in, in verse 2 that Jesus saw their faith, the paralytic is almost certainly in Jesus' field of vision. It's wonderful that Jesus saw their faith, but what he said to the paralyzed man was even more remarkable. Jesus told him that his sins were forgiven. Now, this should make us stop and say, wait, what, what did Jesus say? See, we've just covered a lot of ground where Jesus is healing lots of people. And that's just what we expect to happen next. But what he says next is, your sins are forgiven. Many people have been brought to him and healed with very little discussion about sin. But this is a new response. He doesn't immediately deal with the man's sickness. He deals with his sin. And just as a doctor in the ER studies a patient to know what is most pressing, what the urgent need is, so Jesus looks at the man, judges that his need is for forgiveness and spiritual healing, that it's more urgent and pressing than his need for physical healing. And now the scribes were sitting there. They heard Jesus say, your sins are forgiven. And Matthew makes it clear that they didn't like this. In fact, they thought that Jesus had committed blasphemy. Now, my sense is, after reading these verses, we all begin to kind of emotionally side with Jesus. But I'm not sure that we should look down on them for their reaction. They, they rightly understand that only God can forgive sins. 
they rightly understand that when Jesus tells the paralytic man that his sins are forgiven, that Jesus is claiming to be God, to have that authority. They understand, but they don't believe. Jesus confronts these scribes in many ways on their own terms. Jesus knows that the teachers of the law will agree with him that it's easier to say to someone that their sins are forgiven rather than get up. There's no immediate visible way to prove that someone's sins have been forgiven. On the other hand, if you tell a paralytic to get up, to take your mat and walk, well then, if the results aren't immediate, you know that that person is a liar. So Jesus proves to them that he's the Lord by this healing. That he does have the authority to forgive sins. He literally declares that he has the authority to forgive sins when he says to them, so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. And he turns to the paralytic man and he says to him, Rise, take up your mat, and go home. This is proof that I have power to forgive sins. Now Jesus, you notice, he calls himself the Son of Man, right there in their presence. And these teachers of the law should recognize that. They should recognize that as his messianic title. It's his Jewish messianic title. The Jews were waiting for a Messiah. But what becomes clear as Matthew's gospel unfolds is that the Jews were looking for a political Messiah, which is why it was so important for Jesus to define for them that category of Messiah, what he came to do. Here, Jesus is showing them by His words and actions that the Messiah, the Son of Man, was not about a political kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. And what Matthew wants us to understand from this narrative is that Jesus is God. That He is the promised one of God. And that He has the authority to forgive sins, and that is what He has come to do. We can even see this in the call of Matthew, the author of this gospel. If you take a look at Matthew chapter 9, verses 9 to 13, Matthew records his own call to follow Jesus. And the context in which Matthew sets his own call is striking. Jesus is eating with many tax collectors and sinners. Matthew, he's a Jew. He's responsible to go around collecting taxes from fellow Jews. Jewish tax collectors in the Roman Empire were essentially perceived to be uh, thieves and cheats as they would charge way above their needs and the actual cost. And if that's not enough, they were also considered to be unclean, according to Jewish law. We don't have much information on uh, those who, on who these sinners were, uh, but they could have been. They couldn't have been much worse than tax collectors. Uh, and even if they were different, and they, and they likely were, uh, the tax collectors were still sinners nonetheless. And Jesus says there in verse 13 that that, that is who he came for. He did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. I wonder if you recognize that you are a sinner and need to be forgiven. You know, our culture, it, it discourages us from thinking of ourselves as sinners. Psychologists would urge us not to think that way because it, it kind of uh, perpetuates or propagates a negative self-image, which, you know, they say is unhealthy for us. Actually, to pretend that you are well when you are really sick is unhealthy. And it will lead to death. We are all sinners. And we are all in need of Jesus. The only one who can forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He can and He will to those who come to Him in faith. And that is what we want to turn to think about next. That Jesus is the one whom we should embrace in faith. And as we consider this truth, read Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 19 to 22 with me. Matthew 8, verses 19 to 22. And a scribe came up to him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes, and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Another disciple said to him, Lord, let me go first and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Follow me. And leave the dead to bury their own dead. Now on a first read, Jesus' words seem harsh. But here Jesus makes clear who we must embrace in faith and how. In short, we must embrace Him, the Son of Man. 
That's his messianic title. We must believe that he is the one, that he is the Savior and Messiah who has come to save sinners. He's not just some teacher. He's something more. Understanding this changes everything. Embracing him as the Son of Man, the King of the Kingdom of Heaven, means that we embrace him as our King and we submit to him and his gracious rule. We go where he calls us to go, regardless of the circumstances and the difficulty. Thinking about the scribe, the teacher of the law, was, was he ready to embrace Jesus as more than a mere teacher? Are you? Do you just like Jesus' lifestyle and want to kind of reflect that? Well, that's a good thing. But you need something more. Your sins need to be forgiven. And you need to believe that He's the one who's come to do that for you. Are you ready to embrace Jesus Christ as your Savior your Lord and your King. Well, the next scene follows in quick succession when a so-called disciple expresses his desire to go and bury his father. Here is a man who on first appearance has embraced Jesus, but not really. He wanted to prioritize his own life and follow Jesus on his terms when the time was right. Was he really following Jesus around the Sea of Galilee when he was at home taking care of the family business? Well, no. You see, what's going on is that this man wanted to return home to tend to his father who was in his last years and then after his death return to follow Jesus when the time was right. We cannot have Jesus how we want him, when we want him, and where we want him. Jesus defines for us what kind of savior he is and what kind of submission he requires. This man's family came first before following Jesus. But Jesus is saying that following him in faith means that family loyalties are secondary. And so are concerns of financial security. Perhaps that, that is what was really going on for this man. If he left home to follow Jesus, would he also leave behind his earthly inheritance? There is a cost to following Jesus. But there is also an eternal reward. There's a cost. The cost is worth it. Jesus tells us about the reward that those who receive Him in faith receive in Matthew chapter 8, uh, verses 5 to 13. Take a look at Matthew chapter 8. Start reading there in verse 5. When, he, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward appealing to Him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And He said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I'm, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, Truly I tell you, with no one, in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Now in this scene, we encounter another miracle by Jesus. He heals a centurion soldier, servant, from a distance. It's an amazing miracle. But the focus of this scene is not so much on the miracle as it is on the man who has put his faith in Jesus. Now, we, we see that by how Jesus, his response, he, he marveled at his faith in verse 10 saying, Truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. And, and as we see in the conclusion of this scene there in verse 13, where Jesus again mentions his faith, saying, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. There are a couple of encouragements that we should find embedded in the, this scene for us. Matthew has almost certainly recorded this scene for his first readers and for us to learn and to be encouraged from them. The first encouragement we receive from this scene is that we see a humble Gentile soldier expressing his faith in the Jewish Messiah, in Jesus Christ. 
And not only that, but Jesus receives his faith. Jesus is Lord, as this Gentile soldier calls him. And the truth is, is that he is Lord of all. He came to save and redeem people from every tongue and tribe and nation. He is the one who is fulfillment of God's promises to Abraham. He is Abraham's offspring through whom all nations would be blessed. And we're seeing that right here in this story. This man from another nation, not from the Jewish nation. Jesus is not just the one who would save Jewish people. No, He is the one who would save all who come to Him in faith. Not only is Jesus Abraham's offspring, but so this man is a son of Abraham because he expresses the faith of Abraham. That is why he and others who place their faith in Jesus will recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Faith is how one enters the kingdom of heaven. However, if those who do not receive Jesus in faith, those who do not receive Jesus in faith, if they reject him, sadly, as, as many Jews or uh, as the sons of the kingdom, as Jesus calls them here, if they reject him, they will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This passage is clear. Those who embrace Jesus in faith are received into the kingdom of heaven. While those who reject Jesus will suffer the torments of hell. Friends, have you embraced Jesus in faith? Have you come to terms with the fact that you have sinned and rebelled against your Creator, the one who rules over the winds and the waves, the one who made you? You and I and everyone on this planet have rebelled against God. We've decided to live our own way rather than God's way. And do you not see that an offense against the eternal God is worthy of an eternal punishment? Do you not also see then why Jesus is such a great Savior? He came to live the perfectly righteous life that we have not. He came to lay down His life for sinners like you and me. He died on the cross taking the sins and the punishment due to them for all of those who had ever turned from their sins and placed their faith in Him. And three days after His death, God raised Jesus from the dead, thus proving to us that His righteous sacrifice was accepted by God on our behalf. And now Jesus calls to us. He calls us to turn from our sins. He calls us to turn to Him and to be forgiven. He calls us to believe that He lived and died and was raised for us. Friend, this is what it means to embrace Jesus in faith. And if you want to think more about what it means to truly follow after the Savior, believing in Him, then please do come and find me at the door after the service. Talk with your friend or family member or co-worker that you came with this morning. There's nothing more important that you can think about this good news and what it means to embrace Jesus in faith, the one who can forgive us of our sins. Jesus is the one who can forgive us of not just some, but all of our sins. And He does when we come to Him in faith. And it is good news that Jesus has come to save sinners. And those who have embraced Him in faith are also called to proclaim Him. Proclaim the good news that the King has come. This is what we consider in our final point. Jesus is the one we should proclaim. Read Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35 to 38. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. And when He saw the crowds, He had compassion for them. Because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. See, Jesus, he's been all over the place, and he's seen the great need. And like a good shepherd, he is concerned for his lost sheep. More laborers are needed to go out and proclaim the good news that the King has come. And Jesus urges His hearers to pray for more laborers. And we learn in the verses that follow, Matthew uh, chapter 10, verses 1-4, through 4, is that their prayers are answered when Jesus calls 12 men to be His disciples. 
And these men aren't like his other disciples. Many crowds were actually following Jesus at this time. That, that word disciple can actually often just be kind of a generic term for follower. But what makes these 12 men different is that Jesus endows these disciples with aspects of his authority. The authority that he has just displayed over the course of the previous two chapters. Because they were his representatives on his mission. We see that in Matthew chapter 10 verse 1. And he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. And to heal every disease and every affliction. While Jesus grants them a certain amount of authority, it's not unrestrained authority or unguided authority. As you can see from verses 5 through 15 there of chapter 10, Jesus gives them instructions that they're to follow. He, he gives these 12 men their message and their method. Their message is about Him. In verse 7, He tells them to proclaim that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And we know what that means. The kingdom of heaven has come because... Jesus, the King, has come. And as I said, Jesus also gave them their method. They were to preach this good news. And accompanying their preaching would be displays of the inbreaking of the kingdom of heaven. You may have noticed that Jesus gave his disciples some strange instructions concerning their travels. Jesus is basically instructing them to travel light. Not to take a lot of things on their mission. His prohibitions would not only encourage them to depend upon God to provide for their needs, but it would also allow them to move quickly from place to place, which highlights the urgency of the mission. Sinners need to be saved and hear about the King and His kingdom. Jesus not only provided them with instructions, He also provided them with the situational awareness that they would need in this mission. He told them there in verse 14 that sometimes they would meet resistance. And he actually expands this teaching in verses 16 to 23. This teaching shows us that Jesus actually has two missions in view. Or at least two periods in which the disciples would carry out their missions. They would certainly carry out their mission in Jesus' lifetime. But they would also carry out his, this mission after his resurrection and ascension at Pentecost. Uh, what we have here is both a preparation for persecution and a paradigm. For preaching faithfully in the face of it. How would they do that? They would trust God to give them the words to speak when they were dragged before governors and kings. When they were, God would strengthen them to bear witness to Jesus Christ. And what they didn't know is that before any of this would happen to them, it would happen to Jesus first. I think that we can understand Matthew chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 in that light. Jesus would go before them. He would be dragged before authorities, wrongly accused, and He would set an example for them. Because they were His disciples, His followers, they would follow after Him in much the same way. Amazingly, in verses 26 to 33, Jesus tells them not to fear. This is going to happen to you. You're going to be persecuted. You're going to be dragged before these courts and kings. But don't fear. Can you imagine hearing that? Perhaps I should say that Jesus tells them actually to fear the right person. He tells them to fear God rather than man. Because God can cast the soul into hell. Whereas man can only kill the body. And after that, he, after he says that, he tells his disciples, So don't forget to tell them about me. He says, acknowledge me before men. Proclaim the greatness of my name before these men who hold your earthly life in their hands. Jesus was right. This is what they would endure. And if you've ever read through the book of Acts, you, you see it plainly. What is most, most remarkable to think about, for me, what I thought about, is just how faithful Jesus was to His promise in verse 20. That the Spirit would speak through them. If you've ever read their speeches before the authorities who are threatening to kill them, they are remarkable words of faith. They confront men who are struggling with sins and they tell them, you're struggling with this sin and I'm going to talk to you about it. Because you need Jesus. They're bold and brave and courageous. They trust in Jesus. And the Spirit gave them the words to speak. Most of them lost their lives. But they all found them too. Because of their faith in Jesus 
they found that they had life in Christ's eternal kingdom. Jesus' words to his disciples were honest. He told them about the difficulty of their mission. But he also told them that many people would receive their message about Jesus. That's encouragement they needed to hear with the promise of persecution before them. In fact, whoever receives them, whoever receives their message about Jesus actually receives Him. And that's because Jesus is who they proclaim. And He is also who we should proclaim. Well, what we see here in Matthew's Gospel of Jesus calling His 12 apostles is a unique and unrepeatable event in redemptive history. It's, it's unique and unrepeatable because these men will hold a unique and unrepeatable office in the course of redemptive history. Jesus commissioned these men directly and personally. He invested in them His authority that He has not invested in us. The apostles, in the words of, of one scholar, not only received divine revelation but we're also the bearers and organs of revelation. Even though we are not like the apostles in that we haven't been immediately, without barrier, commissioned by God in the flesh, nevertheless, we too have been sent out by God to proclaim the good news about Jesus. We see this at the very end of Matthew's Gospel. We see it playing out in the book of Acts, where Christians are taking the good news about Jesus Christ around the world. Every Christian is an ambassador for Christ, and we are responsible to make His name known. We, we sh probably shouldn't be expected to cast, be casting out demons or healing lepers, as those were signs which revealed the authority of the apostles' mission. Nevertheless, in faith, we should expectantly labor and pray that the Lord would bring in His harvest through our proclamation of Jesus Christ. He is the one. We proclaim Him and no other. And this is where I want us to conclude. From Matthew's Gospel, we've seen that Jesus is the one who rules over creation. Does He rule over your life? You are part of His creation. You are His creature. Does He rule over you? We've seen that Jesus is the one who has dealt with disease, demons, and death. Has Jesus dealt with your deadly disease of sin? Jesus is the one who has the authority to forgive sins. Has He forgiven yours? Jesus is the one who we should embrace in faith. Have you? Through His disciples, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 3 there, John the Baptist asked this question, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? There's no need to look for another. Jesus is the one. Let's pray together.